0: Good to go. All right. What's that? <laughs> You're fine.
1: Praise the
0: Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins they are many; His mercy is more.
1: Mr for Kids City. Our reading this morning is in the Book of James, uh, chapter one, uh, verses one through eighteen. And if you're using these blue Bibles provided for you, that's on page 1011. So James 1, 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes this is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you so much, David, for reading for us. And I should also say thank you to Ryan Teak for leading us in worship. Uh, uh, Jung Sun Moon, who leads worship most Sundays, as a, as a, as a public school teacher, uh, was striking this past what, week and a half, two weeks. So he has such a good experience that he's continuing his strike with us today. He's holding out for better pay. So I've Told him he's fired. So Ryan, I hope you're available next week as well. Um, actually, the truth is, sitting outside in the bad weather, he he got sick. So Ryan, so thank you for coming uh, this morning. And what's really fun for me is that I get to wish you a good morning now, and then at our evening service tonight, I can wish you a good evening. And I, I do really hope that you can come this evening to our second preview evening service. Uh, it'll be a normal normal service. So all I'll be doing is talking about the pleasures of. Alcohol, money, possessions, music, and sex. Just that. So that's all I'll say about that for now. And uh, if you want to hear more, you'll have to come back later. This morning, though, something very different. Not pleasures, but trials. And I don't mean courtroom trials. I mean what the New American Dictionary calls a test of patience or endurance. Or more simply, Pain. Hardships, afflictions, difficulty, struggle, trials. So so how to think about trials. And we're starting a new series through the book of James, which Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, called an epistle of straw. He wasn't a fan of James. I am, I love James. I love how, both how practical it is, but also how James takes us from the practical, from what we do, to our hidden motivations that, that drive what we do. And 'm recalling this series True Religion. Uh, Robin Cho, who's with his mother, uh, told me that True Religion is also the name of a clothing company, which I was unaware of. So I'm not sure what that says about me, that I didn't know that, or what it says about Robin, that he did. But the title, True Religion, comes from later in chapter 1, when James talks about religion that is pure and unstained before God. It's true religion. Uh, Some people say, you know, yes, I'm religious, or no, I'm not religious. For some people, you know, religion is, is a serious commitment for other people. It's just part of the culture. But true religion, James says, is something that resists any kind of surface level, inch-deep, in-name-only kind of experience. It gets real. It's it's, this true religion. And today, this true religion starts with the hard things you go through. Trials. Start with all the hard things you face, all your pain, all your unrelenting frustration. Get real with that. How to think about trials. Well, let's pray together as we come before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whenever we begin a new series together, breaking new ground in your word, we're reminded afresh how wonderful it is that you have spoken to us so clearly and fully. And as each one of us faces trials, not just abstractly, but not just sometimes, but right now, this week, this morning, this moment, we face trials, and you speak to us about what we're going through. So help us to hear you, that we might... Find strength and help and encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how to think about trials. What are the challenges about understanding James, and one of the challenges for me in preaching James, is that the flow of his thought is not always linear or obvious. It's hard sometimes to figure out how all his points fit together. So in this passage, there's trials, And wisdom, and faith, and doubting, and poverty, and wealth, and temptation, and sin, and desire. It's just all over the map. But all of it is anchored around the issue of what to do when you go through trials. So three things I want to say about trials, three big points James makes. Know what trials are for, know what to look out for, and know who to look out to. So know what they're for, know what to look out for, and know who to look to. So first of all, know what they're for. You need to know what trials are for. Uh, Let's situate ourselves with what's going on. Read with me, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, it's fascinating to me who this James is. He calls himself a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is about as general a description as you can possibly get. So who is he? Well, he's someone who's prominent enough uh, that in the, in the early church who can identify himself so vaguely and yet the people who are getting his letter know exactly who he is. So it's like if I say, you know, LeBron or Kanye, you don't ask LeBron who or Kanye who. Maybe some of you do, but just, just, just roll with me. But... <laughs> This James is a very well-known person. And in, in the New Testament, there are two James, Jameses, who could fit the bill. There was James the brother of John, who was one of Jesus's inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James and John. But that James was killed, in the book of Acts tells us, he was killed pretty early in the book, in the history of the church. He was one of the first Christian martyrs, It was, means he was probably, he probably died too early to be the author of this letter, which leaves us with the other well-known James, the half-brother of Jesus. That's who I think, and who a lot of scholars think this James is, the, the only writer of the Bible who was biologically related to the Son of God. He doesn't say that, though. He's the servant of God. He's the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember back way back in our series in Mark months ago, you remember that Jesus' biological family didn't really believe in him as the Messiah. At one point, they even thought that he had mentally gone off the rails. So the biological brother of Jesus, who had a superficial, mistaken view of Jesus, now, after the death of Jesus and after his resurrection from the dead, he's his servant. He's, He's found true religion. And he writes to people he calls the 12 tribes of the dispersion. The dispersion was the name of the lands beyond Israel from a Jewish perspective, So which means that he's writing to a Jewish Christian church who are no longer living in their ancestral home. And when we connect the dots with what, with what the book of Acts tells us, how the first Christians in Jerusalem, who were mainly Jewish, how they were driven out of town, driven out of Judea in many cases by persecution, when we connect the dots, we realize that we learn that these are displaced people. They're they're refugees, probably. Uh, We had an event this summer that that simulated the experience of displaced people today. That's who these people were. So to people who've gone through that kind of catastrophic disruption, he says these words, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, what's interesting is... That instead of talking about the particular hardships of displacement, he widens the view to anything that you happen to go through. Trials of various kinds. So just to give you a snapshot into my life this past month, I've met trials of various kinds. There's been some really hard stuff. Like hard moments with my children and the fears and anxieties that go to bed with me and that are there when I wake up again. But there's also been plenty of just normal frustrations of life, like a dead car battery or, or poor sleep, which, which makes, for, it makes it harder to deal with that intense meeting, which makes the emails pile up, and, and on and on it goes. There the, are the, the trials of various kinds. When I was five years old, in 1988, my three-year-old brother, Luke, got a very serious blood disease called aplastic anemia. And it almost killed him. Uh, he had to spend, I think it was three months, at a children's hospital in Seattle, which specialized in treating that disease. Uh, we lived in Alabama, and my mom and dad rotated flying up to Seattle to to be with them. And for one month, I, I think it was uh, all of us were there while my, my brother was in the hospital. We had a, an apartment somewhere in town. And of course, as a five-year-old, I I was pretty clueless to how serious it all was and and the burdens my parents were carrying. But I I do remember one day at the apartment, my mother was absolutely wrecked. I assume my dad was at the hospital, but I think I remember, and and I'm pretty sure she confirmed this memory to me later on when I was older, but I, I remember her saying through tears and through panic that Luke had a fever of 107 which is right under, I think one degree under, when your body starts to shut down. That's how close it was for him. And thank God he survived it. Now he's, a, he's an engineer with his own family. But I, I remember a number of years ago, my father telling me that, that these verses in James were his constant companion. He read them every day. And now, as I'm a father, I I cannot imagine something that hard for that long. I have never been through something that hard. But I meet trials of various kinds. You meet trials of various kinds. There's, There's sickness and death and failure and weakness and disappointment and heartbreak and irritation and betrayal and on and on. Trials of various kinds. So count them all joy. I don't know about you, but joy is just about the last thing I feel in those trials. Like I get despair. I get fear. I don't really get joy. It's like how my dog instinctively hides under the furniture whenever he hears fireworks. And thunder, because he's afraid of those things. And so I, I, I instinctively do everything I can to look for a way out of what scares me and causes me pain. I don't want to count it all joy. Probably neither do you. So how do you do this really hard thing? How do you count it something that's not joyful? How do you count it all joy? Well, you need to know what these trials are for count all these various trials joy whenever you meet them 4 verse 3 you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing a lot of people you know when you're facing something really hard you look for a way to to make sense of what you're going through and it's it's like the the early M Night Shyamalan movies the ones that were good there's some big revelation at the end of the movie that makes all the pieces of the puzzle fit together, and it reinterprets the whole movie, and now it makes sense. It's why so many people were annoyed by the ending of the TV show Lost, because it raised all these tantalizing questions, and it didn't answer them. We can only hope that J.J. Abrams, who created Lost, has learned from his errors for his upcoming Star Wars movie. We shall wait and see. But we want the pieces of the puzzle to fit together. We're really bothered when they don't fit together. And when we we face trials, we want to have some kind of explanation that will make this thing easier to bear by being comprehensible or understandable. The Bible doesn't talk about our trials as having that big reveal at the end always, but it, it does tell you what they're for. And it's to make you perfect. That's what they're for. These trials are tests for your faith. Verse three says, "It's not the kind of test that proves whether it's real or not. It's the kind of test that purifies it. Your faith, when it's put through the grinder, produces steadfastness or endurance. It's kind of like like weightlifting." for you weightlifters. Uh, when you lift heavy weights, or when you do any kind of a strenuous exercise, it, what, it actually first tears down the muscle fibers, and then when you rest, those muscle fibers repair themselves uh, that stronger and bigger than they were before, uh, or something like that. I'm, I'm hazy on the details. Some of you are doctors. You can, you can correct me on that later. But that's the kind of experience James is talking about. Going through something hard that makes your faith come out stronger. And when you receive those trials that way, that strengthened faith, that enduring faith, it makes you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it makes you mature. It makes you into the person that God wants you to be, which is someone who looks like God himself. That's what your trials trials are for. And that's why even though your heart wants to instinctively run away and hide or to escape into a distraction or to medicate with a substance or a screen, instead of that escape from trials, you can meet them with joy because God is using them to make you perfect and complete. I just want to pause there for a moment. How does that sit with you? take the various trials you're facing right now, whatever they are, how are you interpreting that experience? What are you doing with it? Are you trying to escape it? Are you becoming embittered by it? What really helps me in these words is that it tells me a different story than the story that I tell myself. And the more I trust this new story, and the more that you trust this new story, the more you can count it all joy when you go through what you're going through. And that's hard work. It's spiritual exercise. The, to let steadfastness have its full effect, as verse 3 says, is something that you, that you do. It doesn't just happen. It's, it's hard spiritual work. It's exercise. There's, there's a lot of, of prayer and faith that happens there. But when you endure like that, when you let endurance have its full effect, making you perfect and complete, that means that you're starting to listen to that different story, and you can start to count it all joy. So know what trials are for. Second, know what to look out for. Know what to watch out for. So James tells us to, count, to, know, what, to know what trials are for and how you can count them joy. But then he raises a warning. What to look out for? Uh, look out for the ways, he says, that your faith or your devotion can be divided. Let's start with faith. Faith. And the way that James gets to faith is through wisdom. So verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The word lack is the bridge between this section and the one before it. So the point of trials is ultimately to make you lack in nothing, but if you lack in wisdom, pray for it. Wisdom in this context means the the practical ways that you navigate this particular trial that you're going through. So you're facing this difficulty and you're not really sure what you're supposed to do in it. You need wisdom for that. And God gives it to you when you ask for it. The word translated generously is actually a pretty rare word, a pretty hard one to translate. But scholars say that probably a better way to understand it is something like like single-mindedly. That God has a, a kind of single-minded tunnel vision, in other words, and wanting to help you in your trials. And he does it without reproach, without finding fault. What that means is when you're struggling through something, and you need help, and you cry out to God to help you, it's not that God huffs and puffs about you for having trouble. So if you ask for wisdom to know how to handle this trial, he doesn't scold you for not having wisdom. He gives it to you single-mindedly, freely. He's glad to. But, and here's what to look out for, you need to ask in faith without doubting. Look at that, starting in verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me put it this way. If God is single-mindedly concerned to help you in your trials, you need to watch out for being double-minded in your faith to him. Now, I imagine that if you're a person of a certain disposition, these words can be kind of scary because you feel the weakness of your faith. You're, you worry about the weakness of your faith. You, you sincerely trust God, but anxiety and fear and doubts, those are there with you too, and, and you struggle with that. I struggle with that. And that's your experience. I think it's really helpful to hear what James is actually describing He's not describing the sincerely faithful person who wrestles earnestly with fears and doubts. Like the person in the Gospels who tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's not the kind of person James is describing. Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, says that the person being described here is spiritually schizophrenic. He says, Moose says that this is a person who wants wisdom from God one day and the wisdom of the world the next? That's spiritual schizophrenia. It's a keep God close but not too close kind of thing because because you don't want to close off your other options. So, someone who has that kind of faith, right? Look out for that because that person's like a wave tossed around." God single-mindedly devoted to you, so watch out for being double-mindedly devoted to him. And that's especially true when it involves your money. Verses 9 through 11 look like a scenic detour into something wonderfully off-topic. But in the context, when we look more closely, we can see what he, what he, where he's going. But let's look at that again, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So you've got a, a poor man and a rich man. Uh, to the poor man, the, the poor person, he says, boast in your exaltation, but to the rich person, it's boast in your humiliation. What he means is that you need to see yourself not as other people sees you, but as God sees you. If you're poor, if you're powerless, if you're below average, if you're lowly, but you're in Christ, if you belong to Jesus because you trust him, you are exalted with him. The Apostle Paul says that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, from God's way of looking at it, you are sitting on a heavenly throne next to the throne of Jesus, who's the king of the universe. And it's from that position of exaltation, that place of honor, where God pours out the richness of of his kindness and mercy on you. So if your experience in life, especially, especially if the trials that you face, would be a lot easier if you had more money and power. If that's what you face, you can boast in the way God sees you. Exalted. But if you're wealthy, if you're powerful, if you're comfortable, you need to boast in your humiliation. That means for you that you need to see yourself as God sees you. Yes, you're exalted in Christ if you trust Christ, but more for you to to boast in your identity in a Savior who suffered the humiliation and rejection and shame and dishonor of the cross. That's what you need to boast in, not your wealth. Because just like the flowers, just like the grass, you're going to get cut down one day. You're going to fade away. Maybe it'll be in a nursing home, with 100 years behind you, maybe it'll be surprisingly soon. But however it happens, your time is coming, and your assets can do nothing to stop that. Why does James say this here? Remember, he's on this theme of single-minded devotion to the God who is single-mindedly devoted to you. He's warning against spiritual schizophrenia. And for a person of means, a person of wealth, a person of comfort and ease, you face a particular danger of spiritual schizophrenia, of trusting God one day, relying on Jesus some of the time, and trusting your wealth the next, relying on your money. As if what you own, what you could buy, is what rescues you and protects you from these trials you face. You need to look out for that. You need to look out for a double-minded, doubting faith, especially when it involves your wealth. So know what trials are for. Know what to look out for. One more thing in how to think about trials. Know who to look to. In other words, don't, don't just know what to look out for, but when you meet trials of various kinds, know who to look to, and who should you look to? The giver of every good gift. This last section here, verses 12 through 18, tells us what God gives us and what he does not give us. What does it give us? Look at that in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised those who love him. Remember James said at the beginning that the trials you face are a test for your faith to purify and strengthen your faith and the purpose of those tests is to produce steadfastness endurance. So now he's saying that, that when you endure you who love him who trust him who look to him he gives you the crown of life. The image here is of an athlete who wins the race and gets a laurel wreath to wear as as the champion. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know what this will really look like for us, but but whatever it is, it's something that will take the sting out of all those trials and sufferings that are so painful for you right now. Some people say that there's no possible way that any heavenly reward can make this present pain and suffering right. There's nothing that can ever make this better. But C.S. Lewis said something that was helpful for me about this. He said that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That's what this crown of life is going to be like. So when you face trials, look to the one who promised you, you the crown of life. That's what it gives you. But then James tells you what God doesn't give you. What he doesn't give you is temptation. Look at that, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with the evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God gives you the crown of life. He does not give you the, the temptation to sin. Let me pretend to be you for a moment. Are you saying that my desire to murder this person who cut me off and shot me the bird isn't actually from God? You're saying that God's not nudging me to get my revenge? Oh, no, not, God's not nudging you to do that. No, But I don't think we're actually all confused on that point. What James is really getting at here are the particular temptations that you have when you go through those various trials. Get practical for a moment. Think about your, think about the, your own trials you're facing right now. When those trials are at their hardest for you, when they're, in, when they're stretching on the longest, or when you're the most vulnerable to those things, what thoughts go through your head? Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's rejected me. Maybe God's not strong enough to help me. Maybe this bottle could help me. Maybe this spending spree on Amazon would make me feel better. Maybe if I give myself away to this person, then at least someone will love me because God doesn't seem to. Maybe everyone else is stupid and evil and hopeless lost causes, and what's happening to me isn't fair because I'm smart, I'm good, and I'm right. Fear and doubt and bitterness and recklessness and self-righteousness those are temptations that you face when you go through trials, and, and they don't come from God. James isn't saying that the temptations themselves come from you, but what he is saying is that you're a sinner, and giving in to that temptation comes from your own desires, from what you want. God intends those trials to make you steadfast and perfect and complete, not to tempt you to sin. So that's what God doesn't give What else does he give? Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Not temptations. Every good and every perfect gift. Everything that is truly good in this world every innocent pleasure that's truly innocent, every moment of laughter with people to whom you love, every, every beautiful change of the seasons, every song that delights you, every meal that you enjoy that brings you closer to another person, every good and every perfect gift comes from the God who does not change, who is not double-minded, who is single-mindedly, unchangeably for you. And he saves the best gift of all, for last, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, what has he given us? New life. The word of truth is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he lived for you, he died for you, he was raised from the dead for you. Sin brings forth death, James said in verse 15. But God brings forth life through the gospel. Do you get what he's saying? He's telling you how to think about your trials, and he saves his best point for last. Your new identity, your new life, your salvation in the gospel. You're facing trials of various kinds, yes, but you're justified freely by his grace. You're forgiven. You struggle, but you're adopted into his family. You suffer, but he's finishing the good work he began in you. You hurt, you have pain, but he's preparing the crown of life for you. When you go through trials, you need to know who to look to, and the one you need to look to is the unchangeable, single-minded giver of every one of these good and perfect gifts. And that's how you can count it all joy. That's how you can endure and remain steadfast. That's how you can let steadfastness have its full effect so that you can be perfect and complete. So, how to think about trials you need to know what they're for, you need to know what to look out for, you need to know who to look to. What James is saying is that trials, these hard things that you face, no matter what they are, can make you complete. And wholeheartedly devoted to God, just as He is wholeheartedly devoted to you. What are you facing right now? What's hard? What's your your significant suffering? What, what 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 various kinds of trials are you meeting today, right now? I can think back to my conversations just this past week with people facing frightening financial uncertainty and. Desperately ill health and professional exhaustion and relational collapse. and I think about how my own trials, how I'm usually not very joyful in them. I don't know if I'm ever really that joyful in them. But then when I stop listening to myself, I start listening to this other voice. I start hearing this other voice. This other voice that tells me about this unchangeable disposition of love and devotion to me that the love of my Savior, who remains steadfast under his terrible trial, for me. And who gives me every good and perfect gift without reproach. And when I start listening to that voice, I can start to count it all joy. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are weak people. The trials and difficulties we face can be so many, so unrelenting, so overwhelmingly big, that we can wither and retreat. And yet, you invite us to come to you and to ask you what we need. And you give us what we need without waffling, without reluctance. So give us wisdom, give us faith, give us endurance, give us joy. Give us joy as we look to our joyful Savior who endured the trial of dying for us so that we would have life in him. We are weak people, so help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Would you stand with me?